Hello and welcome to another episode of If My Feet Could Talk. I'm your host, Owen, and I have another cracker of an episode for you. But first, let's catch up, as I always do, uh, with what's going on with me. Uh, so since my last podcast, I haven't raced, but my run streak continues. I'm on day 1,257 today uh, as we recorded this. Oh, so yesterday I found out I've got a place in next year's London Marathon. Uh, so London Marathon, for those that know me, um, will know that is a very special event for me. It's what started off uh, my running journey. I went from couch to marathon uh, back in 2010. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, yeah, since then... I've gone on uh, and done other things, and it took nine ballot entries attempts later, nine years later, before I ran it again in 2019. Oh, I am absolutely uh, pleased. Excuse me, I've got a bit of frog in my throat there. Um, absolutely pleased that I'm going again three years later um, to London to run it again. Um, I can't wait. Um, I just needed to work on or work out. How I'm gonna run it. Uh, last time, so the first time was my first marathon. Second time, I just wanted to go and enjoy it, uh, all the experience, no race plan or nothing. Uh, that's what I wanted to do, which I did. So this time, do I set myself a goal? We shall see. Um, and then the other thing is, uh, hopefully, I'll be uh, alongside to be able to do it because next year I go back to see. I still plan on doing the podcast and still plan on running every day best I can uh, on dry land um, but it may be some treadmill uh, treadmill running uh, involved on board ship so we shall see um, yeah back to see you next year um, but hey ho that's my job but we'll move on to our next guest uh, we connected through the world of TikTok and not so long ago, uh, he followed me and started following him back, and I've been watching him ever since. And I've got to know a little bit about this extraordinary runner. So, listeners and viewers, I give you Zachary Feedley. And we're recording. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Zach. Uh, how are you doing and how is the family? Family is well. I'm doing well. I just got back uh, from a month-long road trip to many different places. And uh, it's great to be back here in Albion, California with my wife and dog, Cleo. And um, whereabouts is Albion in, in California? So if you know where San Francisco is, you basically go up the coast all the way about three and a half hours and I'm right there on the coast kind of squished between the ocean and the redwood forest so you got got a sort of nice sort of area you've got the coast and the forest areas that's it's quite lucky to be in that where you got two different types of yeah it's super uh, epic so the only uh, thing lacking here is altitude well really uh, kind of gets me sometimes yeah I, I feel your pain on that we're not we're not massive on altitude over here in the uk we do have some small mountains but nothing uh compared to the rest around the world um but you do have a lovely stretch of golf, coastal path around the, around san diego way uh not san diego san francisco yeah um we got some headland trails up um and it's quite far from san francisco so there's not a lot of people it is a tourist destination, but like during the week, it's very common that I'll go on a trail and I won't see another person at all. That's not always a bad thing, though, is it? Right. Sometimes, sometimes just being lost by yourself on the trails is... is it's my is, favorite. Yeah, it's mentally relieving, um, which is great. Well, I'm glad your family's all well. What type of dog you got? Uh, a nine-pound Chihuahua Mini Pincher. Can you really class that as a dog? she's definitely she's got a big personality man small small <laughs> small dog syndrome yeah yeah um that's great um so for those that who don't know you zach um can you just give us a bit of uh who you are what you do um share a little info about yourself yeah so i'm a professional trail runner uh with on 
Uh, I run with a blade and uh, my alter ego is the trailblader. That's what I'm called when I'm on the trails racing. Uh, I also am an executive director of a nonprofit, a Mendocino Movement Project. And our mission is basically uh, to make the world more accessible for disabled people um, in the outdoors uh, exclusively. Um, we host events and connect people with the resources that they need to move their body. Um, so that's pretty much what keeps me busy is uh, those both go hand in hand. Um, I feel like I wear both hats at the same time. That's cool. Uh, so that, uh, that, is it a charity that you, you, you head up? Yeah, it's a, it's a 501c3. Um, yeah. So it, here in the U S it's just like a nonprofit. Yeah. So is that just sort of your area or is it, does that cover pretty much all the states? Uh, it covers pretty much all the states. Um, you know, I do a lot of speaking engagements around the country for it. I go to running clinics and mobility clinics for amputees um, all around. So it, it encompasses basically coast to coast. That sounds, that sounds cool. And I, I take it for, you know, you're not just dealing with adults, you're dealing with children as well with that. Oh, yeah. Um, but, you know, the ages range. I mean, I've, I've hung out with kids like three and four and people in their 70s. Um, so there really is no limit on um, who I work with. If, if I feel like basically if you're a human that wants to, to move their body, then that's basically my, my client. That, that's, that's amazing. Um, so obviously, did you, were, were you from Albion originally or were you from some other part of, of the, the great states? I was from another part, uh, Kansas City, Missouri. So for people that don't, geologically know where that is that is uh smack dab in the middle of the united states um right right in the middle so that's where uh, you were born uh, I'm, I'm brought up i take it yeah in a small town called Kearney, missouri it's uh probably like 30 or 45 minutes away from the big city and it was a very small town like farming community uh, and that's where i grew up and how old are you zach just to give a bit of 38 38 so you're only a few years younger than me um so you would have you would have been raised in a period of, of obviously the 80s and stuff like that where uh disabled children um wasn't free you know the, the whole word of dis disability wasn't talked about much and the support wasn't yeah. there it that's going to be pretty crazy for you guys obviously, especially your parents back then growing up. Yeah, so my parents had me when they were 18 years old in 1984. Um, and back then, there weren't a lot of opportunities for disabled uh, folks. You know, there wasn't a lot of resources. And basically, that word disabled wasn't used in my household or in my life until my 30s, because you wanted to distance yourself from that word and be quote unquote normal or able body. Yeah. You know, so I competed uh, with kids that were able body um, my whole life, basically, in wrestling and football and baseball. So you didn't really have any adapt. The word adaptive, like athlete, was definitely not in the vocabulary back then. And we, there was definitely not any athletes to look up to that were limb different or any of that stuff. So it was, I felt like I was on an island, honestly. I didn't really know any other disabled people back then I, I went to a hospital called the Shriners Hospital which helps out children that uh, you know may be missing limbs or uh, blind or burn so they help out kids and I went there a lot and I, I don't really have strong memories of seeing another disabled kid but surely they were around but I didn't have like a friend or a mentor or you know a person that I looked there was up no to. social media back then either was there so yeah, you know, Paralympics weren't really talked no. about back then. Um, so there was really not any opportunity, um, you know, which, uh, you know, is, is who made me who I am. Uh, but today, like uh, today's world, 38-year-old uh, Zach gets to basically be what 10-year-old Zach needed all the time. So uh, it's really easy for me to go through my life and, and, and through the world and, be that person for others so 
it must have been tough for your your parents back there, especially being young as well. Because um, yeah, you, you would have never you were, known. You were born with out a leg and some fingers. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, my parents. You would have never known that it was tough on them. Looking back in retrospective, seeing you know how they raised me and and all that stuff, uh, they did a remarkable job. Because I never knew anything different. You know, they never like told me you know the world's gonna be tough or you're you know you're this way. If anything, they pushed me pretty hard, um, you know, and and did a lot for being 18 years old. I couldn't imagine being 18 in 1980s and have a, a child that, you know, isn't uh, isn't right off the bat like you have to figure out some things that a lot of other parents don't. So they did a great job, and I think it really empowered me to be who I am today. And you, um, but uh, that, sorry, you you. Obviously, you mentioned they were obviously 18 and they obviously didn't have a lot there. Have they spoken to you about about it since? As, as you got older, have you, have you chatted to them about what it was like? Um, a little bit, not a lot, you know. I don't live near them yeah. and I don't see them very often. And uh, we haven't really had like a deep conversation about it. Um, I know they're proud of what I do and, and stuff. But uh, yeah, I, I just want to go through the world and provide opportunities uh, for disabled people um, in a way that uh, I, ne I didn't necessarily have um, just to make it more accessible. I mean, you mentioned, obviously, you, you, you did sports. That answers my question about being a sporty kid. What was that? How did you find it yourself? I mean, for yeah. a, normal, a normal child will have the normal, I say normal, that's the wrong word to use, but we'll, we'll use a, a, a child without obviously any any major medical issues or anything like that wouldn't would still have some difficulties maybe fitting in or being picked on the team because they're not as good as the others but what was it like for you having those additional challenges you know uh i had to work pretty hard um it was it was a lot of pressure uh that was probably self-induced um because you know i talk about like people have baselines and like maybe the, the average baseline is, is here. And I start out a little bit lower than that. So I, to, I have to work extremely hard just to get to where the playing field is level. And then you got those people that are working to get above that. So it was a lot of work uh, all the time, you know, and it just, it was like kind of a grind for me, especially the sport that I did wrestling, you know, it's physically demanding mentally uh you have to be mentally tough physically tough and i think that was just sharpening who i am for today you know so i can go through and do the things that i do now and it was just like training for even though back then i was training to maybe be a state champ or whatever but i think in the big picture i was training to be who i am right now and obviously i was i was watching something about you earlier which we'll talk about later but you mentioned in this period when you're wrestling um, you chose different goals to maybe what somebody else would have chose. You you chose smaller yeah. victories to aim for than the victories itself. I, did that work for you? Did that, did yeah. that help? My dad did that. So th my dad basically told me, like, I didn't start off by like, hey, you want to get your hand raised like that. You know, he basically broke these down into different, categories and each year we did something new or added something on and the first year was basically don't get pinned you know I was I was taking beatings left and right and yeah, yeah. learning how to take a beating and basically don't get pinned and then the next year it was don't get pinned and maybe have them score less than 10 points and then year three it was you know don't get pinned um, and score some of your own points and eventually I started to win matches and you know became probably like at my best, maybe like uh, a little above a 500 wrestler where I was winning more than I was losing, um, you know, and people started scouting me, especially in like junior high and high school because I had a style and my style was really hard uh, to uh, wrestle because I made people wrestle my game, you know, so I had my, my own things that I did and people started to scout me and figure out ways that they could beat me and it was fun. You know, it was, uh, around high school ages when I started to get what I call muscles, I started to realize that I had more of a body strength than these, these uh, kids I was wrestling. And 
I would do extra push-ups at the end of practice. And I did push up so many times that like my coaches had to tell me to like chill out on those. I had like a limit, a daily limit of like 200 or something. And they're like, you can't do more than that. <laughs> so uh, did you have, uh, obviously I'm not totally au fait with uh, obviously the Greek style wrestling that you, 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 you do in America. It's not really big over here in, in the UK. Is it, is it a weight category type thing? So yeah, it's, it's weight. Were you weighing, even though you're obviously getting muscle and you're, you're obviously getting bigger, but because you're lacking in a limb, you normally you would obviously have two. Would that drop you in a lower weight, but obviously you were stronger? Yeah, so I appeared probably by the average person to be bigger than the weight class that I was wrestling. You know, so I was significantly had bigger arms and, and using bigger that to shoulders. Advantage. Totally. I would... I would like what they call muscle people. So yeah. like, it's not really technique ish. I just relied a lot on my strength and I could get myself into like really compromising positions and still feel comfortable there. Um, which is, you know, uh, kind of different when you're wrestling somebody like that, cause you're not used to somebody putting themselves in that position, but also feeling comfortable in that position. And, um, obviously when you got to the stage where you are actually doing quite well and you're winning and obviously possibly getting scouted and stuff like that, that must have made you feel pretty good about yourself. Yeah. You know, it's, it, it was a long road of hard work and cool. I think that's kind of when I started to get um, really addicted to like progression and seeing like you, like from year to year to year, you can see the, how hard work pays off, you know? And I just, and I think that's what really got me into being a hard worker, you know, because you put in what you get and it's really cool to see that like, kind of go up the mountain how long did you how long did you keep the wrestling up for let's see i wrestled from like second grade all the way to basically my senior year i didn't compete my senior year uh i just practiced i really got into like powerlifting when i was a junior and senior and i was like winning national championships at that and um with weight with like powerlifting you can't really cut weight and be strong so I just didn't want to cut weight for wrestling, but I still went to practice and my younger brother wrestled. Um, so I coached him. Uh, I mean, he was a multiple time state champ in Missouri and went on to wrestle in the NCAA division one and was like a cadet world champion, stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, so wrestling was a big part of my life for yeah. 20 years at least. I mean, it obviously must've been giving you some sort of release as well, because I, we all know kids can be absolute arseholes in school and totally being, being different to them. You must've probably had your troubles as well in school. Or were you lucky not to be bullied or. You know, I, I don't have a lot of memory. I mean, I definitely got picked on. Um, definitely probably uh, more so before eighth grade. Because when I was in high school, I started to have that identity as an athlete. And I think I got a lot of respect for being an athlete. And I trained hard and I was a wrestler. A lot of people don't mess with wrestlers, you know. And uh, I hung around some tough some tough uh, people. Uh, but I don't remember a lot getting bullied in high school. A um, couple instances here and there, maybe getting called peg leg. Or I remember some people used to make fun of my hands. Um, sometimes at wrestling tournaments, people would say stuff to me. Um, but I think I just kind of blew that stuff off. I didn't really focus on it, you know, until later in life when I had a chance to sit still and work with a shaman about, you know, my life and go through some of these traumas and really kind of uh, peel back those layers of things that I held on to that I didn't consciously hold on to, but they were still there, you know? So... Are you predominantly left-handed or right-handed? I know your right hand is the one missing fingers. You know, but... it's pretty wild. So I am, I write with my left hand. I am definitely stronger in my left hand. Um, but when it comes to sports, like I can throw a baseball, you wouldn't even know the difference. I can slam it in left and right-handed, catch left and right-handed. Um, I can bat left and right-handed. I golf right-handed. Uh, so there's different things that kind of go – you know, I know when I play catch with people, they're usually impressed that I can slam it in with both hands with pretty good accuracy. 
that's 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 great how your body's adapted in in one sense obviously left-handed for the stuff pretty sure i was born right-handed yeah i was born right-handed for sure yeah like that comes natural but obviously when i was younger my hand was webbed together i didn't have i had a couple surgeries that uh took some of my hands and gave me more range of motion. I had uh, like two or three surgeries. So at first I didn't have a lot of mobility with my right hand. Uh, I remember playing T-ball. I would catch the ball with my left hand, put my glove underneath my armpit, grab the ball and throw it with my left hand. And then in third grade, I had an operation that kind of gave me more ability to grab things. Uh, So that changed. And then um, I was able to use my hand a little bit different. That's that's quite impressive, to be honest. And then, obviously, moved moving on. You obviously, what did you do after college? What what did you? Well, I didn't go to college. I went right into the work world. Um, yeah. You know, it was just something that I didn't embark on um, and started working and. You know, I still worked out a lot. I coached my brother in wrestling. Um, and then that's when I kind of uh, got my first blade. I got my first running blade in the year 2007. Uh, and I think I was like 20, like three, uh, and really connected with that and started to to try to make a Paralympic track team and sprinting. So about 20, 23, you got your first running blade. What was that like when you first put that on? Can you it was remember? sick. Yeah, I remember it crystal clear. My dad was with me and we went down to Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, which was like five hours from Kansas City. And I didn't go there to get a blade. I went there because I had some issues with a prosthetic and this I was just having some hard time up in Kansas City and this company was pretty big and they said, hey, come down to Oklahoma and work with one of our other other uh, people so they did it on a weekend and I was there to tune up my walking stuff and while I was there it was like a Saturday he's like hey if you come back tomorrow um, we can hook you up with a blade and see see what you think you know it does take a lot of time to adapt and get use of it so don't be frustrated and I remember the guy was setting me up for like it's gonna take you weeks and weeks to figure out and he hooked it up I figured it out in like five minutes and was flying down this hallway, you know, and it was like huge to be able to move like that. You only saw these things on like TV and yeah, at the time. You haven't, you haven't got anything to compare with. It's not like you had two legs. Originally. Yeah. It was insane. I mean, yeah, that... it was, it was like uh, somebody hooked up a turbo to my body. It just said, go. And I went, you know, and, and that was what really started my quote unquote running journey because uh, I did run before that, but it was for like wrestling, you know, like conditioning yeah. and it wasn't like the love of running or speed. Um, so that kind of really started like, Oh, I can run now. What can I do with it? So I set my sights on making Paralympics in 2008, which is Beijing and then London and none of that stuff ever panned out. I went to several high level track meets and uh, crashed and burned. Wasn't training right had a chip on my shoulder, wanted to prove stuff to the world. And it just wasn't the right formula for what my success. What events were you trying to get into? I dabbled in like the 100, 200 long jump. Um, I might have done like one 400, but I didn't really like that. Um, I didn't really love any of it, to be honest. Uh, I just wanted to make a team and be like, yo, I'm a badass or whatever. But it never happened. Did, did you did you start following many Paralympics Paralympians back then to see what they were doing how they were? Yeah, you know, back then it wasn't like there wasn't a lot of high profile athletes like that. I mean, they were starting to happen, um, but they weren't necessarily like dominant. There's one I remember. He might have um, started to make a name for himself. I mean, Oscar. There's Oscar Pistorius, obviously. Uh, but he's, he's he now known for knee. wrong reasons <laughs> totally um he was below he was below the knee yeah which is different than me uh i'm an above the knee and we have our own class and we compete against other above the yeah. knees and at the time 
it was 2012 and a dude from great Britain, uh, Richard Whitehead, he's a double AK. Yeah. Um, he, he started to be pretty dominant and he was winning like the 200. Um, I think he had like the marathon record. Um, I'm actually friends with him on social and we've exchanged some stuff back and forth, but he was one of the first ones that was like Michael Jordan ish, you know? Yeah. I mean, he's, he's still, I think, Pretty sure he did this Olympics as well, the recent one in Tokyo. Um, yeah, he did. Yeah, so he's still just about competing. He's, he's now towards. He's forty-four. Yeah, he's now towards what we would perceive at uh, the end of his his career. But unless he I, wants to jump in some trail running, well, I'll we'll take him. I think he should. Um, same with Johnny Peacock as well. Who, oh yeah, Johnny Peacock. Yeah, he, he dominate. He, he's he, for us, you know. And I think the twenty twelve Olympics. Especially the Paralympics, I think that was a big one. I think we hosted such a good Paralympics, really did push, you know, the Paralympians forward into so much. I mean, I love watching both Olympics. I love watching the Olympics and the Paralympics. I just love all the sports that goes around them, and just seeing all the, the different types of athletes that there are. And what they can yeah. achieve because it's so so inspiring, and I think 2012 really put them on the map that year. I think you're right. I think that's when the tide started to change, and uh, it became like people could make a career out of this. Sponsors were getting bigger, um, the awareness was getting bigger. I agree. I mean, that was about 10 years ago, so um, I think we've made a lot of changes in the world as it comes to adaptive athletes and para- and like Paralympians. Yeah, I mean, even even countries which haven't got the greatest track record with disabilities are now putting athletes into the Paralympics. Um, yeah, and you know they're now being recognised. That you know their little voices that they've had, which weren't being heard, are now being heard. Which is it's cool. I mean, I'm biased, but I think it's yeah. more impressive of that a person can run 100 meters quick with carbon limbs than somebody with two limbs you know what i mean that's yeah, yeah. just me <laughs> I, I i i think you know the hard work that goes into you know the 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 events that these people run whether it's with a blade or whether it's uh swimming without any limbs you know yeah they still got to put the work in it, it yeah, doesn't yeah. matter if you know a blade may give them a slightly different ev- you know, running technique and, and or some people say advantage, but it's not really as Oscar Pistorius uh, attempted in the in the able Olympics one year. You know, it's it's a different it's a different world, and it's it requires the same dedication though, if not a yeah. little bit more. I think it requires more because there's a lot of things that you have to obtain that another athlete doesn't have to attain. You have to have like a good relationship with the person that makes your prosthetic. Yeah. You got to have somewhat of a privilege to get the stuff in the first place. It's not a level playing field uh, as like another runner maybe just goes and gets a pair of shoes and maybe pays a running coach a couple hundred bucks. Uh, there's a lot of behind the scenes um, hustling that goes down for a person to be an athlete with, especially with a blade. I mean, there's many other types of disabilities out there, but you know, from my experience, running with blade you got to like get a get an organization to give you a grant to get a blade and then you got to get a processist to make you something that's comfortable and that works um and not everybody has the same skill set to make that so then you got to possibly travel across the country there's so much stuff that goes into just being able to train um that a lot of people don't see behind the scenes yeah i mean the science behind it as well it's much like yeah i would say a a cyclist you know yes you can train the athlete but if the bike's not aerodynamically you're going to lose those margins compared to somebody else with a better bike so if your blade is as good as somebody else's you can train as much as you want but if they train as much as you and have that advantage of a better blade they're going to win totally and you know it's and it, it it honestly it's the luck of the draw when it comes to getting these prosthetics made i mean I've been in this world for a long time, my whole life. So I have a lot of experience knowing the ins and outs of what a prosthetic should feel like and what, you know, um, it shouldn't feel like, but somebody who's just into this new 
may not know, you know, what's going on. So, uh, I travel from California to Chicago to get my prosthetics done. Um, and before then, how far, uh, 2,500 miles. Yeah. Um, I mean, I stay there in a hotel and it's a fair uh, few hours, isn't it? (laughs) It's a, it's a, it's a lot of money. I mean, my leg all in $50,000, not to mention the time and energy it takes to get it and then put it staying in hotels and flights maintenance. Not everybody has access to that either. So it's, it's a lot of luck to be honest. I mean, I mean, even, even our, even with our, our, our type of healthcare system over here for specialist equipment like that, it's still not free. Totally. It still costs a lot of money for our Paralympics teams to, to get the blades, to get, the, the adapted bits of equipment for whatever sport that they do. So, excuse me. Yeah, I mean, that's $50,000. That's mega, isn't it? Absolutely mega. Yeah. That's crazy. So, moving on, you obviously, you started running. Where, um, when did you actually f- properly find the love for running as we know running nowadays? Yeah, so I left Kansas City when I turned 30 and sold everything I had, gave it away, Um, you know, lived in Philadelphia for a year, was a nanny to two girls, and then after the school year, I found my way in California, and worked up in the mountains of Northern California, and did that for a season, and then found my way to where I'm at now, and kind of started a life here, and settled in, did that for like two years, and then right around 2017, I started working with this shaman. Uh, his name's Fred Mittower. And we did a lot of transformational body work on me and went through a lot of traumas and did a, just a lot of rearranging of who I am and what my purpose is and what I find joy in. And uh, after doing a lot of that work, and I still do the work to this day, I'm actually probably going to see him in the next two days. Uh, Hello. I can hear. There you go. Can you hear me? I can hear you now. You're back. Yeah. Where did you lose me at? Um, you were you were talking to your shaman, um, about obviously transformations yeah. and stuff. Yeah. So we just started to do a lot of work about things, and I started to find new purpose and new meaning to life, and. Uh, you know, started to just be comfortable with who I am. And um, at the same time, I'm still athletic, still had blades. And, you know, I ended up breaking a lot of running or I broke a lot of walking stuff and I only had a blade and I was just running on beaches and trails around where I live. And I really, really liked it a lot. You know, I was not running for a medal or to make a team. It was just like, wow, this is super awesome. Um, and I kept following, uh, following that feeling and, you know, ended up starting a nonprofit, went to India for uh, like a month and learned meditation and just learned a lot about living and how to live a different life. And through that, I running was like right there and my running kept increasing and somehow found my way to born to run ultra marathons in central California, met my friend, Louis Escobar um and did my first trail race at his event and then the world totally opened up in a way that had never been for me you know i started looking at national parks and different trails and was like wow i can go here i can go there and started doing it a lot and um my wife actually uh, encouraged me to get a running coach and i had connections with the usa um, paratriathlon team and got a coach that actually coaches adaptive athletes and she's the team USA coach for paratriathlon. And we started working together about two years ago and got super structured in it and really thrive in a structured environment and love it. Started doing trail races, big trail races, and just started seeing the need for, for these events for adaptive athletes and doors kept opening and I kept walking through them. And here I am today, sponsored trail athlete with on. So, 
when was your first actual big event? After I did 2019 was born to run 10 mile. Then we kind of hit COVID, but I started training really hard during COVID and running lots and lots. And uh, right around April, 2021, I did Zion 50K. Um, and then right after that, I did another Oregon 20 miler through the Sisters Mountains. Then I did Lake Sonoma. I did a Spartan Trail. Um, I did a bunch of stuff in 21, just like bing, bang, boom. And right around this time last year was when I started networking for UTMB and set my sights on UTMB and got in in like January of 22. And that was been my focus really for the last year because um, it's big. It's a big deal. Um, big mountains, big trails, big event. And, you know, I wanted to really represent uh, the disabled adaptive athletes in that event because it doesn't historically include us. Um, there have been other athletes that have ran it um, kind of under the radar. My buddy, Adam Poff, who's an above knee, badass dude. Uh, he, he runs like sub 19, sub 1800 milers as an AK, which is insane. Um, he's on the USA paratriathlon team, really quiet guy, but he ran CCC, um, made it 25 miles before he got, um, removed from the course, but it went like unnoticed. And that really like bothered me that that to me was like one of the biggest athletic feats I've ever seen somebody do. And nobody, nobody knew about it. So that's when I started like, you know, I'm going to go do this damn thing and see what happens and be loud about it um, to give more opportunities for people like Adam that I know like they exist and we can see some really cool shit on those trails. And that became my focus and still is my focus. So you decided you were going to like, you're going to hit UTMB and you're going to hit it hard. Um, What was, and you just, you just told me what your inspiration was it for, but how did you go about the training for it? Because you, you've already said you, you're pretty much in the flatlands. <laughs> yeah, How so we you... got some hills here. Yeah. Um, I did a lot of – we got this thing called the woodlands. It's uh, a lot of redwood trees in the forest, but there's something remarkable about um, the, the geology of it. It's not flat. It's, like, canyoned. So there's, like, this great big canyon where I live with redwood trees. I mean, it's pretty epic. It's It's, like – air conditioned um it's like another world like there could be dinosaurs roaming around back there is what it looks like so i run that a lot um and then in july me and my wife uh set up residence in montana uh my friend chris brown who runs for hoka uh, was traveling and doing some epic stuff in europe and his house was free so we stayed there in missoula and I trained on some of the mountains there um, up in Montana and then basically went straight from Montana to France or to Switzerland um, and then over to France and then ran. Um, so I, I did a little bit, but I learned a lot next year for UTMB 2023. I'm going to go back. Uh, I'm going to go to Europe right like right after Western States. Um, so right after like June 25th, I'll be in um, that area in the Alps for six to eight weeks trying to hit the trail MCC, like the actual trail and really strategically break it down to where it's not this mystery of like, what's it going to be like? What do I expect? But I'll, we'll have a plan for every section of it because I want to cross that finish line in Chamonix next year for sure. Yeah. I mean, I know I've got a lot of, a lot of friends that have raced the uh, UTMB various distances Um and they all go out for like a month or so, six weeks in the van to, to uh, you know, get the altitude training in, to adapt to the altitude as well. Because altitude sickness hits them quite badly, uh, a lot yeah. of things out there. Um, and if you're like, for instance, me, who doesn't live in mountainous areas, yeah, you know, you're not used to it, it can hit you. Totally, you know, and the trails are just different there. Uh the mountain trails are not the same as like the trails here in the U S I feel like we might utilize more switchbacks or like maybe less steep switchbacks. Whereas there and the Alps, the, the mountain trails are just straight up, you know? Um, 
less chance of getting so, eaten by bears as well in there. Totally, and mountain lions and stuff like that. So that's cool. And the altitude really doesn't bother me. I think my body is really set up for altitude. It's the vertical and the like the the different terrains on the on the trails. You know, like what gave me a lot of problems at UTMB this year was it had rained several days uh, in a row before, and my first section of MCC was this like matted down grass uh, that had been trampled by 2000 other runners. Cause I was at the back of the pack. So it was super hard to navigate. I didn't have a lot of grip on my blade side, but with on, we're going to develop some, some other tech. I'm going to come back next year and not only have that as in my toolkit, but also I'll have experience on the trail. And, you know, I really, really like, I feel the competitiveness that was in me in my twenties come out and I feel like I have more tools as a person and I feel more stable as a person to really explore that competitiveness. And I'm super stoked yeah, to go for, all out for the for next people year. People who don't know what UTMB is. Um, it's basically a massive running trail running festival in, in Chamonix in France, um, which covers France, Italy, and Switzerland across the 10,000 athletes. Yeah. It's just mega. And there's different distances. You, different court you've got the, M- the mcc tds the ptl you've got the the main event the utmb um it's it's just mega isn't it what was the atmosphere like for you being one of the few obviously power athletes there did you notice any yes. others there or what? so far as we know i was the only one i mean the only one publicly identified unless yeah. there was somebody else there that wasn't totally out in the open uh, you know and also UTMB doesn't have a system that tracks these athletes. So there's really, truly no way to know, but I, I didn't see another runner like me there. Um, you know, there's a lot of people, a lot of hype in, in Chamonix. Um, the atmosphere was like almost like a, like a music festival, but for a bunch of these outdoor athletes, um, it was cool to be in the race. You know, I, I like to describe the event as for my race, Lots of fans, lots of people lined up on the streets. You know, some of the course goes through people's backyards and up mountains, and there's like houses and villages. So those people all came out to cheer us on. I passed a school that had like maybe like second graders that had like 200 kids outside, and I I high fived them all down both sides, which was super awesome. Um, But the race environment itself was not my favorite event I've ever done. Uh, The competitors, didn't really uh, like, I don't want to say that they like, didn't want me there, but I didn't have the camaraderie that I do in the U S at trail events. I usually leave a trail race in the U S with 50 new friends that I raced with. You know, I didn't meet another person in my event in the race um, at all. And the race officials were really, truly like wigged out that I was there. You know um, the sweepers were right up on me the whole way um radioing in who knows what because it wasn't french and i was slipping around and it was it was definitely challenging it was just how i managed trail running shit happens and i'm really good at falling down and getting back up and continuing and you know i was really looking forward to getting to the top because uh the first section was the the most vertical in the in the race the hardest cutoff the hardest everything and once i got to the top it was a descent down into this valley some flat and a gradual up, which I really do well at, which is like my bread and butter. Um, but they didn't, they didn't know that. And they thought it was maybe a little too dangerous. Who, who knows? It's all speculation. I'm just going off of the vibes that were coming back and the, the facial expressions. And, you know, at first when I got to the top, my team was there and they're like, Zach, we talked to the, to the, to the station, to the checkpoint, they're going to let you continue. Um, it's the next checkpoint. That's going to be really strict which was actually like three hours away and like under 10 K, which I would have made it there. But then I got to the tent and the vibe changed and they snapped my thing off and it was, I was done, you know, and other runners at that type of uh, checkpoint have been let through. It was just a lot of opinions and, and, and stuff that impacted my race. Stigma. And that's just, yeah, it's just a lack of education. I don't hold it anything personal with these people. They just don't know. And I think it starts at the top. UTMB needs to know about these athletes. They need to know a little bit 
uh, be more educated so where they can share that stuff with the volunteers and maybe change some of the way things are done. Cause I, I got removed from course at like 1230 noon on a 40K, you know, like it wasn't like 10 o'clock at night on a hundred K and it's going to be dark. And I had like, you know, 40 more miles left. I had like 20 miles left at noon and the hardest part was behind me. Like, let me keep going. Um, and, you know, and I, and I knew I kind of had a vibe during the week that this was going to be, uh, the outcome, but again, that's why I'm there is to, to make things better, um, for the next time and the next time. It must have been a little bit frustrating though. It brought back feelings of, uh, back when I was a competitive wrestler and I'd get beat and I laid it all out there Yeah, and you just felt that knot in your stomach of like, whoa, like there was nothing more you could do. It wasn't the outcome you wanted. It was just that feeling. And I got that feeling and, and I feel like kind of, um, more competitive out of it. You know, like I think this next year I'm going to have that. I'm still wearing my MCC wristband. I still look at it and I'm ready to come after it. And I think it's going to be fun to explore my alter ego, the trailblader. And I think next year's MCC for me is going to be a lot different. I'm excited. If anything, I left there feeling excited. Yeah, and I think I think you're right. I think I think much like the para Paralympics when it first started and stuff, it's education and change at the at the top to obviously trickle down to um, to the lower levels of understanding um, for the spectators, for the for the for the marshals and stuff like that. You know, getting maybe a category. I know some people don't like to be labeled or they don't like to be treated different but that's why Paralympics have different categories yeah they, they could be treated fairly you know what I mean totally um, so it's already there for them to utilize they don't have to reinvent anything no. they can just take something that already exists in endurance sports like paratriathlon and take the categories that are already established plop it right on over to trail running and boom you didn't reinvent the wheel you're going to now attract more athletes to your event And, you know, the more people you get outside, the more people that care about the environment, which is something that we need as well. So there's a lot of things that can be positive by implementing that. Definitely. And trail running, there's there's something, just something special about being out in the nature, you know, being surrounded by stuff that was created by whatever, whatever, you know, uh, system was out there that decided, you know what, we're going to give these people that love to run outdoors this beautiful scenery, the fresh air, you know, the sounds, the smells, um, and this is, yeah. you know, for them to explore. It should be there for everyone in, in, to explore, whether they're abled or or they've, you know, not, you know, got the, the facilities. We should be able to provide races for them to do it and or just, totally. just accessibility full stop. You know, yeah, and that's why just should I, why should I enjoy it? Why should I get to enjoy it and not someone you know like yourself? You know, where's it's the outdoors, it's nature totally. And, and I don't just advocate at the UTMB level, I also advocate at the grassroots level to get people right. who maybe have never imagined themselves in a trail race or in, on a trail. And I host this event called Born to Adapt, and um, its first event was this past April, and we got athletes out there. Uh, that maybe wouldn't have been out there to begin with. And, you know, just coming at it from both sides, elite level, grassroots level, just growing so sport. Speaking of grassroots level, then, are, are you are you actually seeing anything now within the schools and the and the colleges for um, para-athletes to do cross-country as an example? Yeah, you know, it's not like a standard practice, but I think it's becoming more and more um, – visible that you see these things and i think as we continue as a society it'll be like a staple in like all schools you know like all schools have math class and or whatever i think you'll start seeing like stuff like that for adaptive athletes just as a standard thing at least that's my vision that i see you know then you'll see these athletes in universities um, competing in whatever it may be, cross country, track, um, just kind of give them an avenue to hone in on their sport, just like the Olympians you see today. You know, they all went to college and 
had track teams and, you know, there's athletes that you see, in, at least in the United States, there's a, there's a couple. Um, I think you're going to start to see more. That's, that's great. So moving on, um, you've obviously, you've just come back from Ecuador. What were you doing there? And what was that? What was that like? I, I climbed a 6,000 meter peak, um, a volcano called Cotopaxi. And it was probably one of my greatest and most challenging adventures of my life, you know, being up 6,000 meter plus. I mean, for people that don't know the translation, that's 19,347 feet. It is extremely uh, high altitude mountaineering and it was awesome. It was the hardest thing I ever did. Um, most inspirational thing I've done. I did it with a group of other amputees. Um, there was seven below knees, three above knees, and we all made the summit. Uh, for the first time in this group's history. They've been doing this climb for eight years. It's a fundraiser uh, for a nonprofit called Range of Motion Project. And we basically use this climb to show the world what it looks like when you have proper resources for prosthetics and what kind of mountains you can climb because everybody has a mountain. Maybe it's not Cotopaxi. Maybe it's interacting with their family or going to the mailbox or being involved in their community. They just don't have the resources for the prosthetics. This group has offices in um, Ecuador and Guatemala, and they help people that don't have the resources. So it was so cool to be a part of that. Um, I climbed with a legend, Carl Egloff. He's one of the fastest speed mountaineers in the world. He's got FKTs on some of the seven summits, um, broken Killian Jornet's records on several of those. And he was right there climbing next to us. At, so it was it was awesome. That's that's amazing. And obviously you got a, a documentary coming out of your UTMB with on running, that's right. Yeah, it, out, it came out yesterday. Um so maybe I can give it to you and put you can put it in the show notes and they can check it out. Yeah, we'll do that. We'll we'll stick we'll stick that in there and we'll 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 share the share the love around on that. Um I've seen the trailer, it it looks pretty, pretty uh say eye-opening is probably the best way to describe it. Because I can say yeah. oh, a little bit emotional as well, um, and I look forward. I love I love running doc documentaries anyway. But you know, yours it appears to be something a little bit special as well. Which I'm yeah, on. To. So I got to do a shout out on. If you don't know, is a Swiss brand um, out of Zurich, and they have really invested in me and my vision, and basically let me use their platform to talk about the things that I've talked about today. And, you know, they gave me an opportunity to be a pro trail runner, um, which doesn't really exist for people like me. And they really are dedicated to expanding opportunities and get more uh, people moving and caring about the planet. That's, that's, that's amazing. I'm glad, you know, they've chosen someone like you to, to represent them uh, out on the trails as well, which is pretty cool. Um, so any other, apart from obviously UTMB next year, any other big plans? Yeah, we're going to host our second uh, Born to Adapt event um, in Los Olivos in April. And basically that is our grassroots event that uh, invites um, adaptive and disabled athletes from all over to come and be a part of a trail community. Um, so we're going to do the second edition of that. So I'm really stoked about that. And hopefully we'll get uh, some more partners involved with that um, to make that event the best it can be and get the most amount of athletes there to really experience the trails, you know, that's a really special event anyways, because um, it happens the same time during Born to Run, which is the community that got me into running and made me feel welcomed. Um, so that's really cool. The book Born to Run 2 comes out by Christopher McDougall and Eric Orton, and I'm one of the featured athletes nice. in that new book. So that comes out in December. And yeah, I got I got a full schedule of trail races next year. Tarawera is my next one and uh, UTMB in New Zealand. Yeah. Um, and we're just going to build up uh, to my A race in uh, Chamonix next year, UTMB MCC. Any plans to return to uh, the UK for a bit of running again? I'm sure. My wife's got friends there and um, we'll definitely probably uh, be back um, and and do some, uh, some more sites of the UK. Excellent. Well, you know, if, when you do decide to come over, give us a holler. Um, we'll be able to show you around the delights of the Southwest trails if you wanted. Um, totally. Um, 
we're going to move on now to the final quick fire questions. Ten questions. I'll ask you a question. You give me an answer. Yeah. Often deviate off the answers. Don't worry about it. Um, let's start with, do you have a favorite bit of kit that you like to take with you when you're out running? Um, like, what do you mean? Like a favorite piece of gear? Yeah, anything. could be anything. It could be your buff. It could be your blade itself. It could be uh, a pack or pair of pants. Um, let's see here. That's a good question. Um, I'm a sunglass guy. Nice. So I like to rock different sunglasses. Um, been rocking some pit vipers uh, lately. Um, so those are probably one of my favorites. Excellent. Uh, do you have a favorite uh, food you like to snack on while on the run? Favorite food I like to snack on? Huh. Um, you know, that changes from time to time, but I will say after Cotopaxi, I had a Snickers bar. Nice. And it might have been the best tasting Snickers bar I ever had in my life. It was like the best. I was like, wow, I never knew these were so great. I was hungry. I was so hungry. So they had Snicker bars up there Ooh. and I bought one. All right. Marmite. Have you ever tried it? Yes or no? What is it? Marmite. What is that? Oh, so I'll be a no then. Um, it's a yeast extract um, product, which you put on toast and add to roast potatoes. And it's it's a it's a very you either love it or you hate it type. Product. Yeah, I never heard of it. I'll I'll ask my wife. Next time you could, yeah, yeah, you'll have to you'll have to get your wife to ask her friends to send some over. Is it a like an English thing? Something. It's, that... Yeah. So the the Aussies have their version, which is called Vegemite. Um. But ours is called Marmite. Is it good for you? Second, is it very good? Is it healthy? Oh yeah, it's not. It's it's yeast okay. extract. It's not a bad thing. It's yummy. Marmite. I love Marmite, but okay, I'll ask my wife. Hate it. It's cool. It's one of those things you've got to try. Um, <laughs> you'll have to get some set out to you. Uh, if someone was to play you in a movie about your life, who, what? Uh, who would it be? Who would it be? Christian Bale. Uh, your favorite place you've ever been to? Huh. My favorite place. Um, that's a good question. I mean, I love where I live. So it's one of my all time favorites because I go to really epic places. And I'm always really excited to come back to Albion, California, because it's just very quiet and serene and magical. Um, so I'm going to have to say, like, uh, probably Mendocino Coast. Okay. Do you have a favorite meal? Uh, my favorite meal, huh? Basically, the um, one if you were if you were to only have one meal for the rest of your life, what would it be? Probably a nice salad with uh, a ribeye steak and mashed potatoes and gravy nice. with a kombucha. And do you have a race uh, that you would love to do if you, you know before you retire? Is there a race you would love to do? You know, what's interesting about that, uh, I feel like with On, I have the ability to go to any race I want. I think... I have a scenario. I would love to do UTMB and be competing against other adaptive athletes to where we can really race and, and not be in like this one person show, but have maybe 10 other AKs in a race with me. And we're just out there just like going after it. That's what I want to have happen somewhere. I mean, ideally UTMB, but that'd be sick. Um, what's next? Oh, if you were to have a song about your life, what song would it be? Um, if I don't have a song. Um, huh. Man, that's a good one. It'd have to probably be like some like Rolling Stone song about love and life or something. Okay. Um, pineapple on a pizza, yes or no? You know, I don't order it, 
but I, I eat it if it's there. And do you have a sporting hero, someone that you've like loved watching back in the day or now? Yeah, actually, do you know um, who Nimsdai Perja is? No. From Nepal, he's uh, he's got the record for climbing um, the eight thousand meter peaks, uh, the fourteen peaks. It's on Netflix. You should watch. Oh, his... what's his name again? Nimsdai Perja. Yes, yes, I do. I watched that documentary. I know you. Yeah, talking about it now. Former really, I think he is probably my favorite athlete. He's incredible, yeah. And just what he stands for, and like, uh, you know, his background and his story, and lifting up the uh, Nepalese climbers. I don't know. I just really honestly, I have a I have a desire to climb a uh, 6,000 meter plus peak with him maybe one day. Just send him an email. I reckon he probably, I think I might. Just do it. You no, know, I don't know if it's if it's going to be Everest because Everest is kind of like the, you know, like amusement park of mountains. Um, but I've been looking up some other mountains in Nepal region that are in that same region. Uh, one of them is called Island um, Peak, and that is like six. It's like twenty thousand something. It's pretty technical. It'd be cool to have him guide me up there. Do it, mate. Just to send him an email. What have you got to lose? That's what I say. Um, so moving on to our final bits then. So do you have any uh, advice for anyone listening or watching that may be limbless, uh, has not tried running or, or trail running, how they get into it and just yeah. general, general advice for them? I think my advice is that running is for every body and don't compare yourself to somebody who's been doing it for a long time and uh, I always remind people that like my first 5k is took me almost an hour, you know, which isn't great. Um, but just be out there with the running community. Um, the running community is really awesome. It's great to have a community around you and you don't have to have race ambitions to be a runner. You can just want to meet with your Wednesday run group and you're a runner, you know? So I, I always tell people that uh, you don't have to do a half marathon or a 10k just Go hang out with your local run group and uh, be around that community. That's good. And any advice for uh, any other runners, beginners, for example, that looking out want to stop running? Um, yeah, just write down your goals and your dreams and on a vision board and uh, keep looking at it every day. And that's probably like the greatest piece of advice that uh, has worked for me, you know, writing these things down not just having the goals in your brain, but like writing them down somewhere that someplace that you can see every day. My vision board sitting over here. It's kind of behind some clothes, but all the stuff that's happening to me over the last few years are on that board. It's that's, wild. That's really great. And finally, um, if anyone wants to follow you, find you, uh, and just generally hook up to see what you're up to and stuff, where can they find you? I think Instagram uh, is a good platform. So they can find me at Zachary underscore movement. Uh, and that's just Z-A-C-H-A-R-Y underscore movement. Or if you're a TikToker, you can find me at Trailblader. And that's another platform that I really rock out. But if you want to contact me personally, Instagram's the way. That's brilliant. I'll put them uh, their links down in the description. Well, I guess you like... found me on TikTok. So, I mean, hey, either one. We found each other on there. Uh, and and uh, I've been following you ever since. It's been great. I've, uh, I enjoy your, your stuff. Um, we'll have a finishing conversation off uh, after this. But uh, for the podcast, Zach, it's, I've been absolutely brilliant listening to, to your story. Uh, and like I said to you before we start recording, um, Pretty much every ultra runner and stuff has a story to tell. Uh, and yours is definitely one worth listening to. Thank you very much for giving up your time. Yeah, man. My pleasure. Thanks for having um, me here. Uh, and uh, from the podcast, uh, thank you very much. And uh, good luck uh, in UTMB next year. Thank you. What a great chat that was. And that was quite, I mean, I found it really interesting to hear um, his story. And the the way certain aspects of my sport hasn't moved forward enough yet in in regards to para athletes uh, like Zach uh, in some of the biggest races in in our discipline of sport, you know, um, 
I, I, I find it a little bit um, of a shame uh, to hear um, that they're not really that supported enough yet. You know, it's 2022 now. Um, we should, and the companies like UTMB, stuff like that should really start, um, you know, thinking a bit more about how they look after their athletes, uh, able-bodied and para. But anyway, I really enjoyed chatting with Zach and it's really get, nice to get to know him more. I loved uh, recording that episode. Uh, and if you'd like it to, please uh, like, share, uh, subscribe, all that sort of stuff. Um, and and let's, let's, get, let's get talking a bit more about um, para-athletes in, in the trail running world as well. Let's, let's do this. If you'd like to go follow him, go uh, follow me. I've put the links in the description. Um, and also check out the documentary uh, that's come out. Uh, check, it, check it out. Um, so, yeah, brilliant. Till next time, thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Uh, I'm the Ultra Running Matlow, and you've been uh, listening and watching If My Feet Could Talk. Till next time. <laughs>